Let's pray. May the words I speak this morning, Father, and the thoughts that we encounter from your story and from your word be pleasing to you, Lord, and edifying for us that we, that we might become more like Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I need to move out of the sun here. Angels. Angels from the Realms of Glory is a hymn that tells the story of Jesus, and we're going to use its verses today to frame what we learn from God's Word. The hymn is a classic. It's truly a favorite carol of Christmas, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's because we get to sing about angels, those beings that live in the very presence of God in practically no other story in the Bible do we get so many angels. It's, it's like they couldn't stay away. There are angels at the beginning of the Christmas story. Angels that unexpectedly appear to Mary, to Joseph, to cousin Elizabeth, and to her husband, the priest, Zechariah. Already, that's quite a concentration of angels. But then there comes that moment where unexpectedly, shepherds, received the good news from an angel of the Lord, which even alone he must have been pretty terrifying. But then the angel is joined by a multitude, the full number, the whole assembly of the angel armies. It, it, it's like this stargate open. The heaven and the earth that you knew became so small and you were, you were looking into heaven. How could anyone have been left standing after that? But there are more angels to the Christmas story. At the end of the story, there's an angel warning to Joseph to flee into Egypt and away from Herod's murderous plans for Jesus. And perhaps it was angels even in the dream that God used to warn the wise men about staying clear of Herod to avoid going back to Jerusalem. Angels in the story, like I said, it's like they couldn't stay away. Why? Because they've been singing creation's story ever since the beginning. The Bible says God sits enthroned upon the angels and the whole earth will tremble and quake as they praise him. But there's a sorrowful part angels play in creation's story too. When Adam and Eve sinned and disobey, God sends angels to the garden this perfect place that God had created, the perfect home that they had known, and it's one that we've been longing for ever since, trapped in this broken world, trapped in our sin. They and we no longer live in Eden, and the angels have been standing guard ever since. So how they must have leapt at the opportunity to play a part in this new creation story. There's one more angel note. This comes from Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah reminds us that despite the rebellious, sinful ways of his people, God still says, surely they are my people. And Isaiah goes on to say in verse 8 to 9, and he, the Lord, 
became their savior. In all their sufferings, he too suffered. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he lifted them up and carried them for all days. (laughs) The angel of God's presence saves us, redeems us, lifts us and carries us. Jesus, king of angels, Messiah, born at Bethlehem. So angels were, of course, there when Jesus was born our Savior. And angels are, of course, here today, right now, with a message for our story, too. In Revelation 14, 6, John writes, I saw an angel flying overhead with the everlasting good news to spread to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So according to St. John, when we, we hear the good news of Jesus, when we tell the good news of Jesus, it's carried by angels, the angel of God's presence. Yes, angels love this story, and so do we. Let's listen to their call to us to come and worship. Luke chapter 2. The shepherds worship from the second chapter of Luke, beginning at verse 8. The night of Jesus' birth, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. You will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. What has always struck me about the uh, shepherd story is how Well, once they got the power of speech back, once their brain started working again, once they stood on two feet again, what struck me is how immediately they said, let's go. There's just nothing tentative about their response there. How immediately they said, let's see this thing. There is no doubt here. How do we know that? Because they say, let's see this thing that has happened. Let's see this thing that the Lord has told us about. 
So do you think there was any shepherd who stayed behind that night? I've always kind of wanted to write that story. You know, the story of the one shepherd who chose not to go. After all, someone has to keep watch over the flock that night. So who, maybe this person found this supposed good news just a little too fantastic to believe in. So they stayed behind. And if they stayed behind, what, what happened when the other shepherds got back to the flock that night? When they told him their story about what they had found, what they had heard, what they'd seen, did he believe it? Or did he wait to see if all this was just talk? Or if this Jesus really would make any difference in their lives? But I think, <clears throat> I think we've plenty of clues that indeed... Life changed for the shepherds. We see that in their <clears throat> immediate response. They believed. They knew it was real. It was something they could find. They went off to find the Messiah, and things would never be the same for them. Life would become joy, and, and fear and pain and loss would lose their power over them. The Messiah had come, and he wasn't in Jerusalem. He was a baby boy, wrapped snugly in cloths, lying in a manger right here in Bethlehem. He was, he was one of them. He had come to them. The shepherds believed, and they, they took off after Jesus. And we can call that worship. Their attitude of belief, their attitude of awe and amazement at this thing that the Lord has done, and that they wanted to see that for themselves, that's worship. And it was worship when their attitude went into action. And they went, and they found Mary and Joseph in the manger, just as the angel had said, just as God had told them. Their worship was immediate. It wasn't till after work had gotten out. It wasn't days or weeks later. It wasn't even for the next convenient moment. Their attitude of belief rearranged and prioritized their life. And then it changed what they did and when they did it. And they couldn't stop talking about what they had found. That too was their worship. What they had found, what they had seen God do, they wanted others to know and to find it also. The shepherds told everyone. And in the telling, they were praising and glorifying God. Jesus, in embracing humanity, becoming human himself, had come to the very heart of common people. Simple Mary and Joseph, transients, temporary housing, the first announcement given to those with the most humble of occupations. But it wasn't just for lowly people. Let's hear what Matthew tells us of the story. The wise men worship from the second chapter of Matthew, beginning at the first verse. <clears throat> Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. 
About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. Then Herod called a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him. Two. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. The Bible calls them wise. We number them and call them the three kings based on their gifts. And they've come all this way to worship. Worship this newborn king of the Jews. And although they are apparently aliens here on a visitor's visa and Gentiles, they are in a totally different social stratum from mere shepherds. They're traveling in a group and we really don't know how many there were, but they are apparently people of some personal wealth, and they're investing it, both time and money in this long journey away from home and away from their jobs. They are people with learning and some intellect. They're seeking it, engaging it, testing their knowledge. People with commitment and purpose, and driving them was this desire to see truth, to know truth. Knowing the, the cosmos itself was declaring God was at work in an extraordinary way. And they come into Jerusalem. And they start to ask where they can find the newly born king, this sovereign, this emperor. Perhaps they had asked at the palace gate. And they were told there was no such newborn prince. So it seems that they started asking anyone and everyone in Jerusalem where this king was, and the place was in an uproar. And Herod knows this is more than just talk of some new dynasty. He doesn't question his own court or his own spies about an upstart king. Instead, he calls in the priests. And the question he asks shows how alarmed he truly is. Where is the Messiah 
to be born, he asks. No longer is it just talk of a king, but rather God's Messiah. Well, the priests tell Herod, the prophet calls the Messiah a ruler and a shepherd of his people, and he'll be born in Bethlehem. And Herod must have thought about that description, you know, a shepherd king. He must have thought that was ludicrous. And it must have been a sign of weakness. But God uses King Herod to lead these sages to this little town of Bethlehem. And there these kings meet Jesus. And they worship him. They bow down. Not just from the waist, apparently, but on hands and knees, the forehead on the ground. Worship is what they offer Jesus. Worship. What did that mean? We know of no song or words of praise that they offered. We aren't told of any prayers that they offered. Perhaps it was just minutes of silence or hours of awe. All we're told is that they submitted to a higher king and they bowed. They yielded position to Jesus. Their posture and their attitude said, he is all. He is worthy. I am nothing, but in him, I have the joy of his presence. Now, uh, about that famous song that you've been humming, you know, that one that goes, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we travel afar you know Matthew never says that the purpose of their journey was to bring gifts to this new king that isn't why they came instead they came to worship him their attitude of worship led the wise men to bow down to submit but their action of worship was to open their wallets they turned to their treasure chest, which is where they kept all their finances, and they pulled from it those things that would be valuable across borders, that act as currency. Maybe it was planned, a gift appropriate enough for a king, but maybe this was more a spontaneous response, a desire to, to love on this poor family, to care for this wondrous child. A gift that maybe God used to pay for the upcoming refugee trip to Egypt. A gift that in any case supported the life and therefore the mission of Jesus. It was but an action of worship. The wise men also had one other act of worship that we're told about. It was when, when they heard God speak to them and then they obeyed him. In a dream, God gave them directions to avoid Herod. And they, in essence, said, Thy will be done through us. That, too, was their worship, their obedience. In stark contrast to them, however, is a king who does not worship. King Herod believes, but his belief in the Messiah, Jesus, only fuels his paranoia and his atrocities. His attitudes and actions shape his worship, but it is only self-adoration. 
And apparently the testimony of witnesses would not have broken through Herod's hard heart because God sent the wise men home a different way. But one day, one day, his knee, Herod's knee, shall bow. Paul tells us about it. All in heaven and earth worship in the second chapter of Philippians. When Jesus appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Gathered here before this table, we take our opportunity to come before our Lord in prayer. This morning... We remember all those who are in need that this day's needs are met. We pray for each other as we daily face temptation. And we pray for protection and the world's deliverance from the work of the evil one. We pray for our Father's will to be done in us. And we offer our worship in the words of the Lord's Prayer. Would you stand with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Give not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, gathered with his disciples, and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take and eat of this, for this body, this bread is broken, and it is my body given for you. As often as you eat this bread, do so in remembrance of me. In the same way also, then after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Take and drink of this, all of you. For this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this cup, do so to remember me. We gather around this table to remember what he has done for us. And if you are visiting with us this morning and share our confession that Jesus Christ alone is King of Kings, that he is Lord and Savior. And now that by his word, simple bread and wine contain his body and blood, given that we might be forgiven, given that we might have eternal life, you're welcome at this, his table set for us. And may the peace of God be with you now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And perhaps this new year will be the time Jesus comes. 
When he does, we who believe will rejoice. And there will be no end to that joy. And those who do not believe, they will be crushed in the Bible. And the Bible says that there will be no end to their despair. They will be crushed by an unrelentless weight. But it's not the weight of their guilt and sin. Jesus has already died for that. Jesus has paid for that. But they will be crushed by the realization of, of what they had in Jesus, but never grasped by faith. What could have been theirs forever and what now is lost. And there will be both kings and common people among them. There will be friends and relatives and neighbors. And the thought of that to those who worship him, what well, melts our hearts and attitudes and it stirs our passion and action that they too might know the good news. I think there are three responses that we can have to Jesus. Jesus is who Scripture says he is. Jesus is who Scripture says he is. We see this response in shepherds and wise men. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, and they worshipped him in their attitudes and in their actions. The second response is seen in King Herod. He believed that Jesus was not at all what the scripture said he was, the king of kings. Jesus was not who scripture says he was. But I think there's also a third response, and it's one that I will admit all too often affects my attitudes and my actions. The first response is to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. The alternative is to believe that Jesus is not who he says he is. And the third is to believe Jesus is who I say he is. (laughs) See, that way I can believe Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but not let him act as my King of Kings. The attraction in this and the danger in this is that Jesus can then be as loving, as forgiving, as safe as I want him to be. He is as manageable and unobtrusive and undemanding as I need him to be. You see, this way I get to stay in control, or so I think. And I don't think I'm alone here, folks, by saying Jesus is king but not allowing him to act as king is only a delusion. And living in that way will never experience the total freedom Christ can bring into life and that Christ can bring into death. Our life in Christ will only be a shadow of what it could be, what he wants it to be. And we will miss out on a fullness of joy even when we're challenged by disease or loss, when jobs or friends disappear, we will miss experiencing what his strength can do even through our weakness. 
So how can we tell when we might have wandered from acknowledging that Jesus is King of Kings? Well, you can do it through an honest self-examination of your heart's worship. And by listening to what the Spirit says when you ask Him, what does the posture of your heart reveal about your attitude? Do I bow down before my worthy king? Or perhaps do I just take a comfortable seat? Do I worshipfully yield him my life and treasure? Do I listen and then go and obey him? So I invite you to take advantage of the new year. Take the next step in your spiritual growth and worship. Pick up a take it home for that reflection this week. And, and dare to be courageously transparent. Let us know on the Connect card that you're taking a next step. Pastor Nick and I want to encourage you. We both want to pray for you. Because shepherds and sages have shown us the way. And they invite us and they invite of all creation to come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King. In this season, we have watched. We have prepared. We have rejoiced. And we have beheld. And now with shepherds and sages, we seek the Savior who is Christ the Lord, that we might come and worship him. May our lives of worship be expressed in attitudes and actions that reflect the name of the Father, glorify the Son, and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.